Economists around the world are agonizing over the question, will the United States enter a recession and how bad will it be? New economic data shows that the job market remains strong, but under the twisted logic of capitalism, this may in fact lead the Federal Reserve to implement policies that could make an economic downturn more explosive. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm Walter Smolarik, filling in for Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can follow all of his work at rdwolf.com. So, Professor Wolf, there was a new jobs report that came out at the end of last week. It was stronger than most people expected. The number of jobs created was reportedly 339,000. That's up from the month before, and that remains, you know, considerably above what would be considered sort of the historical average, the historical norm for a month's worth of job creation. Sounds like great news for almost everybody in society, but just walk us through the dynamics at play here. Why is this actually considered to be bad news in the boardrooms at Wall Street? If you will allow me, before I answer your good question, let me say a couple of words about these unemployment statistics. They measure what it is that the statisticians working for the government, mostly in the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but in other agencies as well, what they are told to do by their ultimately political supervisors, how to count, what to count. It's a sensitive topic. Elections are won and lost if people think unemployment is high versus what they think if unemployment is low and so on. It is obvious if you pay attention that whoever is in power wants you to believe that the job situation is good and whoever is out of power wanting to get in wants you to believe it's bad so that they can blame the people in so you'll vote against them. When you clear out all the noise and the junk, let me give you what the Bureau of Labor Statistics said for the month of May 2023, which is the most recent summary of the conditions of the American working class. Keep in mind that the labor force of the United States is roughly 160 million people, about half of our population. All right, here we go now, just looking at the people 
who are unhappy and unsatisfied in relationship to their jobs. First, over 6 million people right now, as we're talking, are listed as unemployed. They want a job, they've been looking for a job, and they can't find one. 6.1 million. Number two, people who are employed part-time but don't want to be. They want and need a full-time job, but they cannot find one. Roughly four million people. Okay, six and four, we're now up to 10 million people. Next category, people who have not been looking over the last four weeks, but not because they don't want a job, they do. Not because they haven't been looking over the last year, they have. But for whatever reason, when the questionnaires and the polling was done over the last month, they weren't looking. They may have been away. They may have had a personal emergency. They may have gotten frustrated by not finding a job. And how many of those are there? Over 5 million. Okay, so a total of 15 million people are unemployed, involuntarily part-time, or marginally connected to the labor force. They're so depressed about the job situation. That's one in 10 American workers. A very reasonable definition of a recession as having one in 10 of your people out of work would mean that we're in a recession now, not wondering about one, anticipating one, or anything else. It's only because a different definition is used and a different set of measurements is made that we are talking about not yet being in a recession, but fearing one. It's really important that people understand that. The technical measure these days of a recession is if you have two consecutive quarters in which the GDP, the gross output of goods and services, doesn't grow, either stays the same or shrinks. Germany, by that calculation, is now in a recession because the last two quarters of that country's GDP were negative. The United States might follow Germany, that's as good a possibility as any other anyone can imagine for a future that nobody can foretell. Now to your question. Why is a good jobs report, such as the one that you referred to, a bad sign in the uh, boardrooms of America's mega corporation? Here's the answer. If the number of unemployed people is less than usual, not necessarily low, not necessarily this or that number, if it's just less than usual, and if the average worker knows that, then the average worker will be a little more bold when it comes to demanding wage increases than he or she might otherwise have been. 
because they know that there aren't all that many people out there with the knowledge or the skills or in the right location to take a job and their employer will hesitate to fire them because the employer knows also that the condition of unemployed workers isn't the usual one. So the worry is among board members that they're going to have to shell out more wages. Now they put that together with the labor militancy. For example, all of those labor actions at Starbucks, at Amazon, that we've been reasoning about for months, or the fact that last week the ILWU shut down all the seaports from San Diego in the south to Seattle in the north on the west coast and all the impacts of that, or the upcoming UPS strike that everyone is talking about. If you have a period of labor militancy, which we do now, and you put that together with unusually low, if still quite high, unemployment, then employers are worried that pressures on wages will be going up. And so here's what they want. They'll want the Federal Reserve to resume raising interest rates. Why? Because if the Federal Reserve does that, makes it more expensive to borrow, then the housing market will go down because people can't borrow high-priced mortgages. The car business will go down because people can't afford the monthly car payments when interest rates go up. People will be using their credit cards less than they normally do. Students will be worried about going into debt for college even more than they have been. The economy will slow down. Workers will be fired. That news will spread. And the corporate presidents say, good, let's raise interest rates because it will, and this is the word they use, discipline the labor force. That's a very indirect way of saying causing real pain, millions of job losses to break the spirit, the ambition of workers to do better. It's a sad lesson in the fact that the real deal that employers offer workers in capitalist systems is this. Either accept low wages, because if you don't and you fight to raise your wages, you give us every incentive to replace you with a machine or to move the job overseas to where wages are lower. In other words, the deal offered to workers in capitalism is low wages or no wages. Yeah, Professor Wolf, well, thank you for that reframing. I mean, I, th I think that that is very important to keep in mind and, and not get too wrapped up in sort of the, the technical definitions that we may hear. Okay, well, a recession is when there's two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth uh, and, and not have that uh, cloud or view of what's what's really going on in the economy and what's really going on in the society where workers are certainly not doing okay. And, and these different metrics and measures and benchmarks, you know, a lot of it, as you're pointing out, is just designed to essentially convince everyone that things are fine, that, you know, it could be a lot worse. 
it's all very mild if there are problems and things are going to get better pretty soon. So just relax. That's the point of, of so many of these statistics that are reported in the news. Very important point. You know, I also wanted to ask you, too, about, you know, in, in terms of the Federal Reserve's strategy. I mean, to a certain extent, this is sort of the flip side of inflation, right? It's also a tactic by the capitalists to claw back, you know, profits that they wish they had made. But in fact, they had to raise workers' wages because it's too easy for workers to find a job in their view. And so, as you're pointing out, they need to find this other mechanism of disciplining them. And that could be a recession induced by the Federal Reserve through interest rate hikes. But up until this point, essentially their approach has been inflation, right? To claw back those profits by raising prices on goods and services that workers need. There's a lot of debate among economists about, you know, what's really causing the inflation crisis. Is it government spending? Is it because there's upward pressure on prices from wage increases? But really, I mean, it's about corporate greed, isn't it? Absolutely. But, you know, Karl Marx is rightly famous for having learned from his teacher, a German philosopher named Hegel, that there are contradictions in everything. And that means that there are contradictions in capitalism. They have problems which they either can't solve or they solve the problem and in the process create yet new problems. That's not unique to capitalism, but it isn't anything that capitalism has ever escaped. And let me give you an example. Absolutely. So far, the inflation of prices has been significantly higher than the rise in wages, so that the argument that we have an inflation because wages went up is clearly false, because the wages have not kept up. Number one. Number two, if you follow the way the economy works, you'll know that wages go up in response to rising prices. It's when people discover that the wages they have no longer allow them to afford eggs for breakfast or milk or the normal grocery items that they begin to get the pressure to get higher wages, to be able to afford the higher prices. So the wages follow. The problem that capitalists now have is they really do have to get this inflation under control. And in a moment, I'll tell you why they have to. So now they really want to. Now they can see, ah, let's blame the workers for the inflation so far so we can sell the American people on the idea that we're raising interest rates to slow the inflation when the reality is we're raising interest rates to make sure that the workers can't keep pushing to catch up because that removes from us the benefit of having raised the prices in the first place, which was to raise our profits, not to give our workers more income. Well, then why is the inflation a problem for the capitalists? Well, the United States is a society that needs to export Many American industries depend for larger or smaller shares of their sales on selling outside the United States. But the people outside the United States have a choice, of course. They can buy what they want from American producers, and that gets an American company exports, or they can buy from other countries, or even they can buy their own domestic product. 
The big competitor of the United States in the world today is overwhelmingly China, secondarily Europe. Well, here's the problem. The United States inflation means that the costs for everybody in the world buying American goods is going up at 5% a year right now, and that may get worse. And the cost to everyone in the world to buy European goods is going up even faster, closer to 10% right now. But here comes the problem. The rate of inflation, 5% in the U.S., nearly 10 in Europe, is 0.7% in the People's Republic of China. In other words, the United States and Europe are pricing themselves out of world markets and the Chinese are taking their place. It's been going on for a long time. But if you allow the inflation to keep going in the United States and Europe, you're literally giving everyone, including Europeans and Americans, an incentive to stop buying the higher priced U.S. and European goods and replace them with the Chinese goods that are not rising anywhere remotely as fast. To say the same thing in another way, even though I know it makes it hard for people who need to believe that the economy is the way they wish rather than the way it actually is, is that the Chinese are able to control inflation way better than either the Americans or the Europeans. Well, Professor Wolf, let me take this in a, a little bit of a different direction. This is related, of course, to the overall question of, of crisis that we're discussing here. Foreign Affairs reprinted an article that was originally posted in October 2013. It was written by Alan Greenspan, who was the head of the Federal Reserve from the late 80s all the way up until the 2008-2009 the economic crisis. And he wrote this article about that economic crisis, about the Great Recession. The title of the article is Never Saw It Coming, Why the Financial Crisis Took Economists by Surprise. So obviously, you know, Foreign Affairs is reposting this now because this is a topic of conversation, right? You know, is another recession coming? How bad is it going to be? When's it going to come? But I think just the title of it and the argument put forward by Alan Greenspan is so remarkable. I mean, essentially throughout, he just sort of throws up his hand and says, well, look, we just couldn't have seen the 2008 financial crisis coming because of animal spirits. There are just things that, that we don't understand. And for that reason, we never saw it coming. Well, maybe they didn't see it coming. Maybe that's true, but they should have because capitalism regularly breaks down with remarkable regularity into crises. Why is that and why are mainstream capitalist economists not able to wrap their head around this fundamental fact? That's a great question. The animal spirits, by the way, that Greenspan refers to, that's a phrase that was coined many years earlier by the British economist John Maynard Keynes. It was a central part of his explanation for the mystery of investment. Why do corporations invest when they do? How do they make their decisions? More or less investment, invested here, invested there. And he tried very hard to pursue the various theories 
and in the end threw up his hands and said, it's so complicated, there are so many factors that I'm going to lump them all together in a kind of mysterious phrase, animal spirits. But it was tongue-in-cheek. It was a, an honest admission that it's a bit of a mystery, and therefore it's very scary if you really understand that, because capitalism depends on investment. And if investment is a mystery, then we're saying that we have a capitalist system that puts us all at the mercy of a mystery, and maybe we could do better than that. It's a little bit like saying, gee, it's a mystery when a drought comes or a storm threatens we have a whole developed science to give us at least a little bit of help rather than simply throwing up our hands and saying the weather is mysterious. So Greenspan ought to have admitted that he didn't. But Greenspan was right. Many others have pointed out it wasn't expected. And let me answer your question almost with a personal story. I have a formal education in economics. I have a PhD in this subject, which I got from very reputable universities here in the United States. And here's something I noticed, which I think answers your question. If you look at the typical curriculum that an economist, a professional economist like myself, would have had to go through if I went to school in the late 1940s or even in the 1950s, the curriculum would have had one or more, often more than one, whole year course devoted to something called the business cycle or economic crisis or boom and bust cycles, whatever the title. But it would have been a curriculum course because it was recognized that the country had suffered terribly in the great crash of the Great Depression, 1929 to 1941, and that we had to have a generation of economists who understood the crisis, who studied the crisis, and therefore would have real useful knowledge about what did and didn't work to make it less severe, to make it last less long, etc., etc., by the 1960s and 70s, when I went through the graduate economics program, the courses in the crisis weren't there anymore. I remember asking my professors, why is that? And they looked at me sheepishly and they said, well, the profession doesn't seem to think they're necessary. I found that flabbergasting. So I pressed on and I said, well, why is that? Well, they're convinced that we learned the lessons in the last depression of how to prevent, to minimize the next one. And therefore we don't have to teach about how to manage it because we're gonna prevent it from happening. Well, you don't need to be a psychologist to say the following. That is called wishful thinking. It is stupid because if you teach people about the crisis and one doesn't come, you're okay. But if you don't teach people about it and one does come, you're in deep trouble. We are in deep trouble because the generation of economists that run this country at this time, my classmates, 
such as Janet Yellen, who was my classmate at Yale. They don't know. They never had a course in how to manage a crisis. Sure, they may have read an article or a book, but a sustained educational training is what is needed. And it's purely wishful thinking, not just of the economists, of course, but the newspapers want to believe it. The people who don't like those of us that are critical of capitalism hate it that one of the easiest things for us to criticize is capitalism's built-in instability. The fact that on average every four to seven years it crashes, that it has tried for 300 years to stop that process, that it failed throughout that time to do it, that we had a doozy back in 2008, another one in 2020, and we're all sitting here shivering, wondering when the next one's going to hit. The logical inference is we obviously don't know how to prevent them, and we don't even teach people how to manage them. This is called letting wishful thinking really cloud your brain work. It's a sign of a system that is not only in trouble, but is depriving itself of the means to try to constrain that trouble, make it less severe. So we have all of these glad tidings that are really phony, wishful thinking that doesn't want to face a reality. That, in my judgment, is why we have the lack of understanding and these, you know, feel-good statistical cherry-picking what makes us feel good rather than facing the reality. And let me end with one clear reality. I live in Manhattan, New York City, but I keep track of what's going on in our economy. Here's a story that is very hot in Los Angeles as we speak. They have thousands and thousands of people living in broken down RVs on the streets of Los Angeles, more than they've ever had double what they had a very few years ago. Desperately poor people are renting broken down RVs because it's cheaper than what it costs to have an apartment. That's what poverty does. That's an economy that isn't working real well, to say the least. And this is happening all over the country, comparable events. Poverty has gotten worse in our society in the last decade, not better, and on and on. Those are real measures. And the people who run the society, who choose not to look at them, who choose to measure and compare one thing to another with the end result, we're doing pretty well, we're doing pretty well. We're way beyond that. That's a luxury we cannot afford, neither foreign nor domestic. And I appreciate your program in part because you ask these kinds of questions and you give us a chance to face these realities instead of sweeping them under the rug. Well, thank you very much, Professor Wolf. We'll keep doing our part and we, we know that you'll keep doing your part too. Um, we're going to keep following this topic of a recession, of an economic crisis. We're going to see a lot more of that wishful thinking that Professor Wolf talked about in the coming weeks and months. Stay tuned to the Socialist Program for analysis of that. We've been very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for our regular weekly segment. You can check out his work at RD 
ProfessorWolf.com. Professor Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. We bring you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.